the financial dads are not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, tax or other advice in or by virtue of this podcast. Hello, welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. This podcast is for all the moms and dads out there who struggle with life's topics, especially related to family and finances. Now, here's my dad, Paul Fagan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. Today, we welcome Eric Miller. Eric is the co-owner of Econologics Financial Advisors and is the chief financial advisor. He takes pride in helping practice owners become the financial heroes of their own stories and has taken this passion to over 600 families in the past decade. During this time, he has had over 15,000 conversations with practice owners regarding money, investing, practice expansion, practice transitions, taxes, asset protection, estate planning, and helping them shape their financial attitude towards abundance. Econologics Financial Advisors is an Inc. 5000 honoree for 2019 as one of the fastest growing companies in the United States. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate being here. Yeah, this is great. We had a little dialogue before we hit the record. And and I think intuitively, and we'll jump into this when we get into it, um, that your financial practice in terms of serving practice owners really could be applicable to any business owner. It could be applicable to any practice owner. And when we typically think of practices, at least for me, I think of doctors and lawyers and dentists, but I come from the IT world. I mean, I could see this, your type of advice being uh, applied to professional IT professionals, right? Who have formed a practice to support IT folks. So um, hopefully as we dive in to this, it'll be a very interesting topic for our listeners to get that insight into what this is all about, because we always want to be learning and growing on the podcast and exposing our listeners to all kinds of different facets of financial services. But Eric, before we jump in, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey. Yeah. So I always had an interest in personal finances like you, I'm sure. And uh, if you remember the old USA Today, they had like the different colors of the sports and then the money. And I was, I was attracted to the money section, I, but I never understood any of it. I'd open a paper. I'm like, I don't even know what this means, but I'm, I probably should know something about it. Um, got into, um, uh, you know, working in the financial sector and then just realized at some point in time that I did want to I did want to help people financially. I wasn't sure I was going to do that. Um, you know, took the route of learning how to be a financial advisor. And, you know, the traditional financial advisor is is basically people's experience with advisors is, hey, how much money do you have for me to manage so that I can charge you a, you know, a management fee to do that. Um, but I realized that I wanted to work with uh, business owners. This, this was like, I just realized that, you know what, I, I think I want to work with people who I feel like have some sense of direction and they want to be in charge of their financial life. So um, we decided to work with healthcare practitioners um, and specifically like veterinarians and, and physical therapists and optometrists and chiropractors and dentists and then these types of practices. And, you know, I, I learned really early on, like, look, if, if I'm going to help these people financially, I have to know something about their biggest investment. And it wasn't their 401k. It wasn't their house. It was their practice. It was their business. And what I found is that most business owners, and like you said, whether it's a, it's a, it's an IT business or it's a, uh, whatever kind of business it would be, 
I tend to find that uh, people that own their businesses um, don't always treat them like investments. They treat them like a job and, you know, they give away a lot of value and they don't know how to harness the power of their business to benefit their household. And they don't have it structured correctly to do that. And so, you know, we, I, I just, I immersed myself in understanding, you know, profit margins of businesses and, and cash flow analysis and, you know, where, where they could really, um, you know, find money that gets lost in a business. A business is like a, it is a cash flow consumption machine. It just eats cash. And if you allow it. So, you know, I really kind of figured out like, how do we systematize this so money can transfer from the business to the household so that the person, you know, can satisfy their, their household personal financial goals as well. That's, that's a long-winded cool. answer. Yeah. No, that's a great answer because one of the things that jumped out at me and people who listen to the podcast, I have a glass top desk and it took me a year of COVID working from home to figure out I could walk, I could write on top of my desk with an Expo oh, marker wow. and just erase. <laughs> so I take notes. That's my habit. But you said be in charge. Yeah. I think that's such brilliant advice. So simple. And, and, and But I think it, besides business owners, I think that could apply to any facet of personal finance, right? You want to be in For charge sure. of your financials. And the other thing that resonated was that practice owners don't, are not viewing their practice as their biggest investment, where, as you said, yep. psychologically, our minds go to your biggest investment is your 401k. Your biggest investment is your home, right? That's yep. what most people are, are thinking about. And I, I would think that practice owners probably think in those same lines too. And you have to kind of steer the ship to say, no, really for you as a business owner, your business or your practice is your biggest investment. And and the last thing By was, far. you know, you know, people treating their business like a job, right? Yeah. And I could see how that kind of plays in and, and, and how you really want to make sure that you're not treating it like a job. You have to treat it with ownership. So that makes right. sense. So, and I think overall, you know, what I, what I found, um, you know, when looking kind of at and, and researching and stuff, really you focus on maybe three tenets of treat your practice like an investment, like you just said, yep. and, you know, create wealth outside the practice, just in case something happens within the practice and then maximize the value of your practice to make it worth the most it can be. It, it, would you say that those are kind of three important tenets? Is there another one that I'm missing? No, those are, I think are, are, are vitally important because look, most of your wealth is going to be generated based upon the, the ownership and the value that you can create in the business and, you know, how well you run that. And, you know, look, I mean, most of the, the people that I work with or anybody that, that owns a business, I mean, there, there's a certain reason you got into it. Maybe there's a skill that you had, um, you know, for most of the people that I work with, you know, they, they want to treat patients like they're at healthcare, they're in the healthcare business. Like they went to school for seven years to learn how to be, you know, a dentist, an orthopedic surgeon, you know, a, uh, a veterinarian, whatever it would be. They didn't go to school to learn how to be a business owner. They didn't go to school to learn profit and loss statements or any of these things. They went because they, they wanted to, you know, they wanted to be practitioners, but if you're going to run a successful business, look, you, you have to also have the skills of ownership. Like how do I, what's my role as an owner and then executive skills, how do I manage and coordinate and run and uh, other people as well and set up systems so that this business isn't dependent just upon me. 
because there's really not a lot of value if it's just dependent upon one person. So you want, you know, in any business, you know, I think the the challenge for the owner is to kind of get out of doing all the day-to-day work and start hiring other people. That's going to create real enterprise value. That's going to create value for the business because anybody that's going to buy it is going to see, wow, this thing can run without this person necessarily being here. So we, we really try to get our our clients to see that, you know, you can increase the value of your business exponentially just by treating it like an investment and not just a place where I go to work to treat patients. Yeah, and that's, I want to definitely jump into kind of the mechanics and some of the, the practice-related questions that I have for you, but there was a couple yeah. of things that, that popped out. So we're going to go off track a little bit. No um, problem. I, I love the fact that, you know, what resonated was um, when you were talking, I had a, a friend of mine tell me one time, when you're looking at a business, you don't want to buy a job. Right. And I think you're referencing that where – you know, a lot of businesses, people jump in, they want to be the jack of all trades, master of none. And what they think they have a business, but really what they have is a job that they, you know, that they're kind of working for themselves. I don't know if it's coming out right, but to what no, you said, right. they're not, they don't have a business. They don't have something they could go sell, right? It's a one person show, one man band, one yep. person band. That's not a bad thing, but you teach people how to get out of that mindset. And really expand so at the end of the day, you have a business that is a, an entity on its own, which I think is great. The other thing you triggered, uh, which is off topic, but re- I don't know what triggered it. You were talking about people that invested seven plus years in their career, especially doctors and, and, and maybe dentists to a degree. And the one thing that pops up is, in my mind, is student loans. How do you factor in, especially people that are starting their practices early, how do you factor in potentially massive school loan debt? And have you seen that where you are working with practice managers where their biggest debt service is not their house, but it's the actual you know, student loan debt that they're carrying? How do you have people tackle that? Yeah, it's it's terrifying the amounts of, uh, of debt that people are coming out of, of school with right now. And, you know, there's, there's a couple of... Uh, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of people talk about debt relief and, you know, uh, you know, forgiving debts and, and all those things. You know, all I can say is uh, typically what we do is is we look at the, the let's say a guy comes out of school with like a couple hundred thousand dollars of debt. And, um, you know, look, I, I actually make it a game. I make a game out of it to for that owner to say, hey, look, OK, now now you've you incurred the debt. Great. Whatever it was, it gave you a, per, a, a particular skill, but now you got to, you have this business. All right. So why don't we do this? Why don't we figure out a way that we can take, you know, a portion of your profits and channel that towards the extinguishment of your, your loan debt. And let's make a game out of it so that we can get it paid off in like five to seven years. And most of the time that I've had owners that, um, have come out of debt or come out of school with a, a huge amount of debt. The most successful ones that I've seen kind of continue to live like students for a period of years and and just, you know, just learned their craft, learned how to be really good, produced. You know, they didn't buy the big fancy homes and the big fancy cars and they just tackled their debt, right? And I think what that does is it it shows them that, they took responsibility for the debt and they 
Um, they learned how to be a really good practitioner and it put them uh, in a position where they could then, you know, continue to expand and, and grow their business. That seems to be what my experience has been with the most successful owners when they've, when they've done that. It's probably not a very popular answer because everybody wants to be like, how do you, you know, how do we navigate this or get it forgiven? And I'm like, okay, you can do that. And I'm not, I'm not judging anybody on that. I'm just saying those people that took, that said, look, we borrowed it. We should pay it back. You know, that's, I think that's the mindset that they had. They borrowed the money. They should pay it back. That's not popular though. Yeah, no, I get it. And I have some additional questions for you that I think I want to table because I'm taking, I'm taking you, I'm taking us off track and and I want to kind of dig into the, to the, uh, and I'll save those towards the end, but um, how is a practice, you know, and just, this is kind of going back to, you know, practice financial management for practices one-on-one. So this is the series of questions I want to kind of ask is how is a practice different from any other type of brick and mortar business? I mean, really it's not that different. I mean, look, you still, I mean, you have a product, right? I mean, what's the product of a practice? It's a person that comes in and gets well, you know, if someone has a, so the product of any kind of business, you know, there's a, there's a valuable product. Um, in a, in a practice, typically you have a practitioner who, or multiple practitioners, uh, and then you have support staff uh, that are, you know, handling the the patient load and then, you know, the billing and the collections and the sales and the marketing. I mean, it's, it's really no different than any other kind of, of service business uh, in that, you know, the difference is, is that your your product is, is either a pet or a person that, you know, is feeling better than when they first walked in. And so from from that standpoint, it's, it's no different than any other business. Um you know, from a from a from a cash flow standpoint, uh, you know, most of these businesses get paid, you know, through insurance companies. Um, but the the value of the business, of course, is going to be determined based upon the profit of the business. You know, how how profitable is it? How well run is it? You know, how how much is this business not dependent upon just one doctor and they have multiple doctors? So it's it really is probably similar to any other kind of business that hopefully isn't just relying upon one person for all the production. Yeah. And, and one of the questions that kind of popped out at me was um, you probably have situations where you're the financial advisor for a practice with multiple practice owners. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself being a financial referee? Sometimes yeah. among the owners <laughs> and you don't have to give specific examples. You can keep no. it as simple as yes and no, but it, it sounds to me like you could be put into some pretty interesting situations and in trying to navigate kind of partnership, especially finances, financial, because financial is so personal. Yeah, it, it really is. If you're going to go in a partnership with someone, look, the, there has to be like some, some, like some non-negotiable, principles that we're both going to abide by and you know the purpose of the organization we have to be in agreement with how we run the money we're going to have to be in agreement with and if you don't get those things like uh you know really ironclad before you start the partnership then it's going to go south at some point in time so you know i I tell people like if you're going to be a partner with someone it's it is it is akin to a marriage and you are going to have to make sure that this is someone that you can get along with, that you can communicate with, that you can, uh, if w- there's going to be disagreements, what's your method for solving disagreements? 
And, you know, is it for the benefit of the organization while we're making decisions? I mean, if you can nail these things down prior, but some people just kind of jump into partnerships without really knowing the other person that well. It's like, oh, yeah, let's just be partners. You know, we'll just do a handshake and that's it. And that's typically at, at some point in time, I've seen that go south way too many times. So. And do you recommend that people document those rules of engagement or? Yes. Or, okay. So there's something called an operating agreement that everyone should have if you have partners. And that basically is just the outlines all of the, if, if, if you know what hits the fan and we can't work these things out, how are we going to work out the, the separation of the business? You know, how are we going to manage, you know, the business? Like, what are the rules for this? So that we have something that we can go to. It's kind of like your constitution for your, for your business. Like these are the things that we, we agreed upon. And if you don't have that for a partnership, you're just, at some point there's going to be a disagreement. So, and you have nothing to go back on besides, you know, Hey, remember when you said that, you know, and that's, that's not really going to work in the, the current legal system. So I would just recommend everyone really have a strong operating agreement, management agreement, those kinds of things. Just le keep your legal agreements uh, in place. Um, Very cool. Prior. And, and I think when you talked about uh, disagreement as being a D word, I, I think I've heard this somewhere else where when it comes to partnerships, you have to focus on a lot of D words. There could be divorce, yeah. disability, yeah. Uh, death, Right. So, all those. you know, are those the types of things also that you should have really spelled out in that operating agreement? Like what if scenarios to try to figure out what's going to happen if this happens? What's going to yeah. happen if that happens? Yeah. All those things are, are, are generally um, outlined in the operating agreement. You know, buy, there's a buy sell of what happens if one partner dies. You know, I had that look, I had a heart attack earlier this year and, you know, but we had like, you know, I have operating, we have buy sell agreements and operating agreements and all those things. So, you know, there wasn't like this huge concern, uh, obviously besides, you know, me having a heart attack. But um, I think the thing is, is, is that, you know, you, you get all these things in place, just it's preparation, you know, for things that could happen. And there, and all of these things, you have to think outside the box of like, okay, what happens if this happens? Um, but it's important that you do it. It really is. That's the owner. That's when I talked about like your owner, your owner role, that's the role of an owner mm. you know, to be, is to, is to make sure that the compliance and the legal aspect of the business is in, is in good shape. Yeah, this is all great. Cause I think this is applicable to not only practice owners, but any business owner, any, like bu you said, any so. business, any business that's definitely applicable to. Awesome. And, and how can one treat their practice like an investment? Well, I mean, in a number of ways, uh, I think the, you know, there's, there's key areas that uh, you can look at your, look, if, if I'm going to buy a business, right. If, and if I'm going to buy something and I'm going to pay a lot of money for it, obviously I want to see some things that are in place that would give me confidence that this business is going to continue to be profitable. It's going to be sustainable it's going to be something that, you know, cause I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to probably use debt to pay this business. I need enough money coming in to service the debt. So I think owners need to really always look at their businesses. Like would, would someone else want this? Like would someone else value this business that I've created? And I think the first thing that most people are going to look at are going to be, are the finances in order? Like, 
Do you have profit and loss statements that have been kept up to date? Do you have um, records of production? Do you have, are they orderly? Do you owe back taxes? Like, what am I buying here? So I think financially, you, you really need to make sure that you have all of your, your financials uh, organized and there's a record of them and there's just, there's, there's nothing out of the ordinary there because nobody wants to buy a business that doesn't have orderly finances. That's, that's certainly one. Another area would be your personnel. Like, do you have job descriptions written up for each person? Is there an organization board? Um, is there a statistic that is, that you use to measure, you know, your employee production? Um, what's your turnover like in the business? Because if I'm buying a business, I'm buying the people as well. So you, you definitely want to make sure that those things are in good order. Then the last one would be like, what about the physical location? Is it in good shape? You know, is it, do you own the building? What's the lease agreement look like on the building? You know, what am I jumping into here? So these are all these things that people can look at from a buyer's perspective and say, what I want, is this a, is this a, a valuable business that I'm jumping into? Or am I jumping into like a hornet's nest? And I think all these, these, some of these things that you can look at and, um, you know, and evaluate and determine whether or not it's, it's worth the risk of doing so. But as an owner, you can work on all these things to make it valuable for somebody else. If you want to get a, a, a top dollar, you know, sale, which I think most people want to do. Yeah. And it, it's, that's it, it, all great advice. And, and the one thing that kind of jumped out at me was in thinking about this, uh, even with personal finance, you want to build a team around you. So whether it's an attorney, an accountant, yep. there are these people that you have in your corner. Um, one of the questions I had was when you're building that team, and maybe I'm going to answer my own, my own question does the business need its own individual representation from an attorney and financial advisor perspective? So it's, so the, the business is the entity, not the four partners within the entity. Does that make sense? Like, or well, do you see sometimes where people have multiple accountants? I don't know. Like that's where I could see kind of the, the struggle happening sometimes, but how, yeah. how do you see that in terms of we need an accounting firm, we need an attorney. Is it multiples of those because you have multiple partners or do you have one for the entity called the business? You know, that's probably, that's a good question. I, I typically see this, look, um, you're, I look at the household as like the, the parent company, because really and, and truly, if you look at the household, that the household owns uh, everything, you know, if you're, if you have your household, your household owns your house, your 401ks, your, you know, if you, your business interest, all those things. So everything is for the benefit of the household. So when you're building your financial team, certainly you're going to need, you know, uh, an attorney, you're going to need a CPA, you're going to need, um, uh, a, you know, maybe a business consultant, uh, if, if you need help with that, you know, an insurance agent, a financial advisor, you're going to need all that. You're going to need all these people around you. Um, I think in the business, I don't think you, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have a CPA for the business and then CPA for the household. I just have one CPA that, that understands my business, that understands how my business works. So I would, I would, and I tell people this just because I think it's, it's very valuable. I would make sure that I'm working with a financial advisor and a CPA that understand my type of business that have worked with other business owners in that industry. 
because I think that's super valuable because they see, you know, the, the pros and cons and the successful actions and the unsuccessful actions of other types of owners in these businesses. So I'm, I encourage people highly to work with specialists in their type of business, financial specialist in their type of business. Cause there's a lot of lost, there's money that gets lost because you know, you're working with like a generalist that doesn't understand how your business works. That's great advice. And I love the analogy kind of comparing kind of the, the, the different households in the business and kind of calling that out. So that was, that yeah. was great advice. Um, how does one create wealth outside the practice? So now you have this thriving practice. Yeah. Everything's good. Happy path. Everything's good. Business yeah. is booming. You have, you know, three or four partners. Everyone gets to take their vacations and build their wealth. And how are you building outside the practice? And more importantly, why is it important to build wealth outside the practice? Well, look, I mean, uh, if you're lucky enough to get your business to a point where it is thriving and, and it is producing, you know, a lot of money in production, that's great. But, you know, in life, you don't want to be relying on one of anything. And I think all too often uh, uh, business owners tend to just rely on their, on their business uh, as their only source of income for their household. And that's dangerous because in, in any business, especially a small business, it, I mean, it just takes one lawsuit, one health issue, one economic crash. And, you know, you can see, you know, half of your, your revenue wiped out. So it, it is important that you figure out a way to take a portion of the business profits, channel that to the household, not just to, con not for consumption purposes, right? but to build other income producing assets outside of just the business. And that is a, a very key thing because I, I just, I don't want to rely on just the business revenue or the sale of the business for my quote unquote retirement. Uh, I need to build other income sources. The best way to do it that I found is, is this in corporate America, you will find that I kind of use that concept of the parent company. You'll find that, that almost all of these companies, like I'll take Facebook, for example, Facebook owns like 50 other companies and there is a, uh, something called a management fee that is paid from the business to that parent company. Usually it's five or 10% of the revenues. Okay. Comes right off the top, goes right to the parent company for support and, you know, whatever it is that they do at the parent company level. So if I'm an, if I if I own my own business, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to take 10% of the business revenue, channel that to the household, and that money isn't for bigger cars and bigger houses. It is to build other assets, whether it's, you know, investing in, you know, the stock market, whether it's real estate, whether it's, you know, other business, whatever it is. It's things that will produce a cash flow for the benefit of the household. You're just using the business to feed it, right? So that is, to me, the best way to do it if you want to accelerate the process. Because imagine if you have like a, a business doing, you know, $2 million a year, 10% is 200000 Take it right off the top, goes to the household. You got 200000 now to, to, to buy and build other assets. That's how we do it with all of our clients. Um, we, we get that system set up and it's very workable um, and it produces results by doing that. It's just... that, that is interesting. And, and you said something and, and it sparked another question uh, on top of that, where you talk about investing. So you invest in the practice, you're investing in outside the practice, but there's yep. one thing that kind of, this is anecdotal, 
I've talked to people over the years where at some point we hit economic times, the business is starting to slow down mm-hmm. for some economic reason. And sometimes, and this has happened, I know stories of it where families and, and, and people lose their business because they didn't own the real estate underneath the business. Yeah. And this is just kind of a sidebar question as to how important is it for a practice, you know, I'm just going to use a doctor's office to own that building. Maybe they don't have to, but it feels to me, I think this is more anecdotal for me. When I think about owning the building, I think about someone who owns a restaurant or a deli or a car wash, right? Where you don't own the land underneath and then the landlord has autonomy over your wealth. And I'm just curious, how important is it for practice owners or business owners to own the underlying property, to own that building that they're in? Because that's also another big part of their wealth is if they own the building. So 100%. I, I encourage almost every one of our clients to try to own the real estate where their business resides, 100%. Because again, when they sell the business, they're not going to sell the real estate. And whoever is going to buy the business is, I mean, moving sucks. Nobody wants to move. And if you got a, a fair, that's why I'm saying, if you got a fairly nice building, it's a big investment to to get it. But I think it definitely pays off. The business pays the, the mortgage off over time, right? And then by the time you're ready to sell the business, not you get the sale proceeds of the business, but now you own the real estate and now you're going to continue to get the rental income from, you know, from the, because the, the business still is going to have to pay rent to somebody, whether it's, you know, to another landlord or to you, you make the choice. Not only that, but you get some fabulous tax benefits from the ownership of the real estate as well. So I would highly encourage, you know, whatever kind of business that you're in, if you can own the real estate as well, it's really powerful, just not from a cash flow standpoint when you're ready to sell it, um, but from a tax standpoint while you own it. It does give you a lot of good benefits. Yeah, and I think this ties to my next question. I guess that's one way to maximize the value of your practice by making that investment into the real estate that you're within. But what are other ways that a practice can maximize the value of their business? Well, I think you can, uh, number one, expand uh, and, and grow because nobody, nobody wants to buy something that is going down like, or they're not going to pay top dollar for it. I mean, they'll pay you, but they're not going to give you top dollar for it. So I, I certainly think that anyone can improve their marketing and their promotion. That is a hundred percent going to improve the value of that business. Because if you don't have like an online presence, if you're not really known in the community, like this is like PR and marketing, right? This is, you know, how well do people look at your business? Uh, I would definitely invest in that because that there is value in that for sure. And um, I think once you, once you see that, uh, once you see the value of that, it's like, oh, I want more of this. But certainly marketing, trying to get new customers, what's your what's your plan for, you know, customer acquisition um, and having it so that, you know, you're, you're showing a growth rate in that. I think it's extremely valuable for the business in doing that. Um, some other things that you can do to improve the value of the business. Uh, I'll go back to just training your uh, training your staff making sure that your staff is very well trained in what they do and that you have a very good culture in the business. Nobody wants to buy a business. I've seen, so, you know, I guess 
I'll use an example of this. I had a, uh, a client in Nevada that was going to sell their veterinary business. And you wouldn't think veterinary businesses would be that, ex be that expensive, but this was like a $15 million sale. But the corporation that was going to buy it found out that there was some toxicity amongst some of the um, veterinarians and they nixed the deal with five days before close. So my, my point is this, make sure that you have a cohesive group that is kumbaya before the sale. Because if, if someone smells that there's some toxicity in the air, they will nix that really quickly. It kills deals a lot. That was heartbreaking. 15 million bucks just went bye-bye to that owner. It's like, wow. That is, that is crazy. And it's so funny. Just as a side note, when you talk about the veterinary veterinarian business, I believe that we, we adopted a, a Guinea pig in the house yeah. and we have health insurance for her. Yeah. Um, we, we, we took it, it over, we took it over from the previous owner and because then I had a dog growing up. So I'm, I'm well aware that, um, there's definitely money in veterinary and being a veterinarian. Um, hundred percent. Some of these things you talked about marketing, yeah. investing in training for your employees. Um, these are all expenses. And I want to kind of ask a question around how do you reorganize expenses for more control? Because I think some of these things could get out of control. So how do you make sure you keep your hands and arms around the expenses of a practice? Well, look, I mean, you got to pay attention. Number one, I think this is what happens with a lot of business owners is like, Oh, I don't want to, I, I don't want to deal with finances. You know, I have someone else doing that for me. And I don't want people to like have to like do the bookkeeping. I don't want them to have to do all the journal entry of all those things. But look, you do have to like know what these numbers represent. And you do have to know your metrics like, you know, and you know, in every business there's going to be certain, you know, categorical expenses. You know, if if you have staff, like what should your wages be? What what percentage of your revenue should be going to staff wages, you know? Is that 35%? Is it 45%? Like what's the range that you should, you should keep that in? And you got to keep an eye on that. You know, if you're in, an, in a, any other kind of business, you're going to have, you know, what's, what is my rent uh, uh, percentage I'm paying for rent on my building? Um, what is my uh, other overhead costs? You know, what, what are these costs and, you know, relative to what my, um, you know, my product, my, my revenue production is. So I think just knowing some of the simple numbers is really, really important. What's my make break number? Like, have I factored that in? And what does that number consist of? So many people, when I ask them like what their make break number is, like make break would be like, this is what I need to bring in every month so I can break even, right? And I'm like, well, what's your definition of break even? Because I have a different definition of break even than most business owners do. Because I include your profits, I include your reserves. I include your buffers in the make break number, right? Because if you, mm. if you don't, then you're going to be in trouble. So when, when I come up with that make break number for people, it is, it is different from what they have. It's generally about 20% more than what they have as a make break number in their mind. And that's really important because um, if you think that you need to make a certain amount of money, then you're going to make a certain amount of money. If you think you need to make this much, you'll make that much, you know, like if you have a child and, you know, they needed $10,000 to save their life by Monday, Paul, you would come up with the money somehow, some way to get that money, right? 
It's called necessity. And that is what drives revenue. I'm kind of going off on a tangent right now, but that's, that is the, that there's necessity that needs to be created in any organization to meet what the financial requirements would be. But most people have that number incorrect. So, you know, one of the valuable services that we do is just make sure that that, that owner is operating on the right financial numbers so that they're not underestimating what they need to bring in for this business to be solvent. And I think that that is a very, very important point that a lot of business owners are underestimating how much they need to bring in in revenue to continue to, to have an expanding and growing business. But you have to have certain accounts set up so that money is going into these accounts. And, and But that's part of what your make-break number is. I, we can probably do a whole webinar just on that concept alone. No, that that's great. And I... I... I am. I think we talked about early on. I think there's a couple of topics we could hit if you ever want to yeah. collaborate again with me. I, I would love it. Um, this probably ties to my next question. What three areas of financial planning do practice owners miss and need particular help with? And I think this was one of them, right? This yeah. make break. It sounds like there's a big component, but what are some other? What are the what are these other areas that they should be um, that they miss typically and they need that help? Um, well, I think that's probably number one is just making sure that they're operating on on the right targets. Um, most of them don't really have any metrics that they keep as well. Uh, like when I ask people, like, what are the financial metrics that, that you keep to kind of measure your progress? And, you know, I'll get, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, I look at my bank accounts every, every month. I'm like, well, that's, that's not really a metric. Like, like what are your, what's your effective tax rate? Like how much you pay in taxes? What's that percentage? I don't know. My CPA handles that. Well, no, these are them them things you need to know. Like, what are your debt ratios? You know, what percentage of your income is going to service your debt? Well, I never really looked at that. I was like, well, these are things that you need to look at so that you know you're you're managing your household like a business. So, you know, I think a lack of metrics uh, is a is another big one. Um, and then I just think the protection of their assets and their money is something that gets neglected as well. Like, look, most of these, if you own a business, you, you do become a target of attacks at some point in time. And as the, as the bigger that you get, the more that you expand, uh, I think you are going to find that you're, you're probably going to open yourself up to attack more and more and more. And that's a sign of success, right? Is that you'll get attacked. So, but you also have to make sure that you have, you know, done the necessary things to make sure that your assets are protected. You know, you've, you know, there's certain business entities you can create to protect assets. There's certain ways you can title assets to keep them off. You know, if you get sued for some reason, there's certain insurances that you can, you can have that would help insulate you. So I just, I think making sure like if I'm going to go through the hard work and the effort of building like a big empire of, of assets, I need to also make sure that I protect my empire. And I think a lot of business owners kind of neglect that and their advisors do as well, which is a problem. No, all great advice. And, and one of the things that I want to touch upon is cash flow, right? Businesses are responsible for their own financials. And, and you've pointed it out throughout the podcast. They really have to be in charge. Um, how, do, how do you prevent and salvage a cash flow crunch? Yeah, I mean, this is this happens uh, quite a bit where someone will come to me and say, I'm just, we're not, we're not making it. You know, we're not, we're in a cash flow crunch. I don't have enough money to cover payroll. 
Um, and, you know, look, like any anytime there's a disaster, you, you know, the disaster happens quickly, but it there were there were outpoints that led up to the disaster. Like I've never seen a marriage that just, oh, you know, we just we stopped loving each other one day. Right. I mean, it was like there was a build up and then the blow up. That's pretty good. The build up and then the blow up. I like that. Uh, yeah. Um, so like any other business, if you're experiencing a cash flow crunch, there were probably things that you weren't doing that led to that cash flow crunch. But be that as it may, I'm not going to sit there and like, okay, let's just dwell on the past. What do you do right now? First thing you have to do is that you you got to get your people reinvigorated with the purpose of the organization. Like, because people really do rally behind a purpose. And if if you're not getting um, like production from your people, it's because they, it's, I, I hate to say this, this is an owner owner responsibility. Like you're not doing a good enough job of getting your people motivated and understanding what the purpose of the organization is. So that is certainly the first thing that I have people do is just like, okay, what's the purpose of the organization? Get everyone back to what the vision would be. Um, and then just get back to having people just do their jobs. Like if you look at a football team that I don't know if you're a sports fan, but you know, that loses a couple games in a row, what do the coaches do? They say, get back to fundamentals, get back to basics. So it's the same thing in a business. Let's just go back and say what, when we were last doing well, what were we doing? Well, we were marketing this amount to this many people. We were promoting to this many people. We were closing sales. You know, we were doing these things. So getting back to basics is really going to be, you know, uh, an important part of that. Um, knowing your numbers, like what is my new, my make break number I need to bring in. Um, and, you know, really pushing out services that have good profit margins and getting them, you know, getting, increasing the speed of how you deliver your service is money loves speed, right? Money and speed go together. If, if you, that's why Chick-fil-A does so well, cause they, they, mm. they just deliver so fast, right? I'm not the quality of their food, ah, but man, they deliver fast and people like that, you know? So I get getting back into the speed of production, I think is, uh, are some things that you can do that will at least get you to, um, get back to, you know, where you're not insolvent anymore. Very cool. I like some of those analogies in there. And I have one question that I think um, I want to learn a little bit more about. How do you evaluate your income sources for highest income potential? I think that's kind of one of those yeah. those questions that was kind of, I, I just want to learn a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty simple, actually. So in a business, you have multiple things that you sell. Right. Like most businesses aren't just relying upon one product line. They have several. So if I if I go to, you know, I'll, I'll use another a veterinary example again. You know, they just they don't they do surgeries. They do spay and neuters. They do dentistry. They sell dog food, cat food. They, they have like multiple streams. Right. OK, great. Um, now, which of these do I want to do the most the most volume in. And to do that, you really have to look at your income, all these different things that you deliver in your business and, and rank which ones have the highest profit margin, which ones are in demand, which ones do people actually want and which ones are easiest to deliver. 
And the ones that have like all three of those characteristics, those are the ones that I want to do in volume, right? Because if, if they're profitable, if people want them, right? And they're fairly easy for my staff to deliver and my organization to deliver, I want to do those in volume, okay? It's the specialty ones, the one-offs that may pay well, but are very hard on the delivery of them. And I got to market like a lot to get people to, to want them. So that's when we're, when we talk about like looking at, you know, what your services are, are they profitable? Uh, do people want them? And are they fairly easy for you to deliver to your customers? Those are the, how you evaluate your income sources. Interesting. Glad I asked that question because it yeah. was a little vague to me, but as soon as you started talking about it, I get it now for like, you know, for example, if you're in a, you know, veterinarians that are selling pet food or they're selling fleet collars, whatever that yeah. is on top of their normal services. So I'm glad I asked that question. Um, I want to circle back to the beginning of the podcast and I know we're going a little longer, but that's okay. My listeners definitely know that sometimes when we get dive deep into these rabbit holes, it's fun yeah. and, and, and they definitely do, I believe, listen. And so, uh, and, and thank you for indulging me with, with staying a little longer than we normally tape. But yep. two of the questions I want to kind of circle back to, which we chatted about off air or off taping was one was Dave Ramsey. I think we both um, are familiar and, and have followed some of his principles and practices. Um, how do you apply some of his techniques and teachings to, to practice ownership? Well, I think a lot of the things that, that Dave Ramsey talks about certainly are, are beneficial, especially from the, from a debt standpoint. And uh, so I like, you know, his, um, and I think he also uses a, the, a, a gradient approach. I think he calls them baby steps. Yes. So I agree with that. I think people tend to like want everything right now and they don't realize that. But I also don't think it needs to take 30 years either. Like you can get into a financially independent condition, you know, really. And I think anybody can change their lives in five years. You can transform your life in less than five years significantly. So um, I really agree with him on on the debt aspect of that. Uh, some of the other things he talks about, um, I probably am not in, in as much alignment with, but, uh, certainly the debt thing I think is, is number one. We talked about like, you know, whether or not you should pay off your house or not. Yeah. That was my next question because I, this is one of, that was one of those times I had wished I had taped, uh, when you were talking about it, because you really had some great insights to it. I, I, I'd love to get your, and this is sort of off topic, but yeah. we talked about owning the real estate and stuff like that, but how important is it for someone in your opinion to pay off their home? Well, I'll just, I'll go by my experience with the people that I've, I've dealt with. And, you know, most of the people that I deal with, I don't know, you know, they are business owners, you know, their net worth is going to range anywhere between, you know, 2 million and 25 million. Um, uh, but here's what I've seen. Um, when it comes to paying off your house, again, I don't think there's, there's this concept of this either, or, you know, an absolute, like there are circumstances where people shouldn't pay off their house, but by and large, I would say that, um, when I've analyzed people's financial conditions that have had their house paid off, I found that almost every single one of them were not in a worse condition because they had their house paid off. And 
uh, when I started to analyze this, I started to realize too, and it just wasn't like the the numbers because again, someone could put a spreadsheet in front of me that shows, look, if I would have taken the money that I used to pay off my house, I could have invested that at a 10% rate and I would have had a pile more money here. Okay, great. But real life doesn't work on a spreadsheet. And when it comes to um, your house, it, it's not just a house. It is a place where you have your pleasure moments. This is where you have your family moments. This is where you have creative ideas that come. And there is real value in ownership of the place that you live. And when you feel like I own this place, I don't owe anybody on this place. This is mine. This is kind of my castle, whatever you want to call it then there's a sense of relaxation that allows creativity to occur. And I think that is the, the, the hidden value of having your house paid off. I get the dollars and cents. People will, will, will be able to beat me on that number because they're, it's, it is, you, know, you can probably make an argument for that. But they don't take the, the emotional value and you know the... Um, that kind of value that you get when you own your own space. And that it's that reason why I tell people that sh they should have their houses paid off because of that. Very cool. Yeah. And this is, this is one of these, is, this is one of those episodes where I, I look back and I say, this is why I love doing podcasts, right? Because I get to learn from people like yourself and get these great insights. So thank you for doing that today. And, yeah. and typically when we wrap, I, I go into kind of a summary recap, what I may have learned and, I've jotted down a lot of things, right? Be in charge, gamify your school debt repayment. Operating agreements are very important. Yep. Making sure you have the right CPA or, or, or financial advisor in your corner for the business and someone that knows your business that you could carry it over to your personal. Own the real estate, whether it's the practice real estate or the home payoff. And I'm missing others, but those are the things I jotted down as you were talking. So thank you for that. And yeah. before we close, I want to make sure that people can find you. Any final takeaways, any final thoughts? And where can people find you and get in touch with you, Eric? Yeah, so my, my, I guess my final thought would be, you know, look, I mean, there's, there's going to be a lot of noise out there about, you know, hey, we're going into a recession and, you know, all of these negative things that I'm sure we, we hear on, you know, the Twitter universe or whatever universe, uh, the, you know, other social media platforms that you see. Um, I, I just, I tell people, look, you, you know, you are in charge of your own personal economy. You can be in charge of that. And 99% of the condition that you're in really has very little to do with the outside economy. It's your own habits and your own actions that you can control. So you can do that. And, uh, if you want to, if you want to get in touch with us, you can just go to econologics.com, which is E-C-O-N-O-L-O-G-I-C-S.com. And we have all kinds of downloads and financial assessments that you can take uh, that, um, you know, hopefully will be some benefit for you. Very cool. Well, Eric, I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today. And I'm personally looking forward to the next one. Awesome. Thank you, Paul. Very cool. And thanks everyone for downloading our podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at financialdads at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook. Just go to financialdads.com. So with that, this is Paul reminding you managing finances can be stressful. But that's why the Financial Dads are here to help you plan for success. Have a good one, everybody. Be well, and thank you.